0: Amen. All right, well, we're there in Leviticus chapter number 14. And uh, we're back in the book of Leviticus for our Wednesday night Bible study. We're taking one chapter a week, and making our way through uh, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 14 uh, mostly deals uh, with a lot of the same things that we've already kind of learned about and been dealing with. It deals with some sacrifices that we've already uh, talked about and went through and studied. It deals mainly with leprosy. There's two main chapters in Leviticus that deal with leprosy, and it's chapter 13 and chapter 14. And although chapter 14 is dealing with the leprosy that you would find in a house, which would be like some sort of uh, mildew or fungus or something like that. Um, a lot of the steps are similar. If you remember a couple of, um, and I guess it was maybe three, three or four weeks ago now, uh, last time I was in Leviticus on Wednesday night, where we went through and talked about, it's the same things that they were looking at. They were seeing, uh, before when they were looking at leprosy in the skin, they were seeing if it was deeper than the skin. With the house, they're just kind of seeing if it's deeper than the wall. They're checking to see if it spreads. There's a lot of uh, similar things there. So what I'm going to do tonight is I, I, I want to not... I'm going to skip the parts of Leviticus 14 that are just similar to things that we've already talked about. Also, Brother Stucky a few years ago preached the sermon on Leviticus 14, and I could have just told the sermon, but I just decided not to do that. So, if you really want to just learn more about leprosy and you can hear about the story of when he lived in Phoenix and he lived in an apartment that had leprosy, you know, then just you can listen to that sermon. All right, I'm not going to preach that, but I do want to deal with the part of this chapter that's that's new. Uh, to to us as we've been studying the book of Leviticus, and it's in this it's it, it's found in the first part of the chapter, and it's also found in the last part of the chapter. If you look at Leviticus fourteen, look at verse one, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, "This shall be the law of the leper. In that in the day of his cleansing, he shall be brought unto the priest, and the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look and behold." If the plague of leprosy be healed, uh, uh, if the excuse me, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then shall the priest command to take for him that is to be cleansed two birds alive and clean, and cedar wood, and scarlet, and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. And it goes on and on. But I want you to notice that this is repeated again. If you look at the last part of the chapter, go, go to the end uh, to verse number 49. Because that's, that's the cleansing of an individual that has leprosy. But then when you go through and you figure out that the house is cleansed also, then if you notice verse 49, you do the same thing. And he shall take to cleanse the house two birds of cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop. And he shall kill the one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. And he shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet and living bird and dip them in the blood of the slain bird and in the running water and sprinkle the house seven times. And he goes on uh, to explain. So I want to uh, preach to you tonight about that sacrifice, that bird sacrifice where you have two birds and one is put to death and one is uh, killed. Because that bird sacrifice basically pictures what we a core a core doctrine of christianity which is commonly referred to as the substitutionary atonement of christ and I want to talk to you tonight about the substitutionary atonement of Christ and how it's taught here in Leviticus 14 and why it's important for us uh, as Christians. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16, you have to turn there, it says, "...all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect." Thruly furnished unto all good works. The Bible tells us that one of the reasons we study the Bible is for doctrine, is to learn doctrine. And you may be sitting here and saying, like, oh, substitutionary uh, atonement of Christ, you know, that sounds boring. Why do we need to learn that? But, you know, a month ago, if I would have stood up and said I'm preaching on the Trinity, you probably would have thought the same thing. You know, and you just never know what weird doctrines, what false prophets are going to come you know, either into this church or into some other church that you may be a part of someday and try to teach you. So you know what I've learned about doctrine over the last month or so is that you you need to just go over it and over it and over it and over it because no matter how clearly you try to teach it, people just don't get it. And you have to just repeat it and teach it and show it. So I don't want you to just roll your eyes and say, oh, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. You know what? Right now, we're all trying to make sure that we know exactly how to you know, explain the Trinity and what our position is, and you may want to just figure out where you stand on these things as well. So I want to just show you what the Bible teaches about this, because, you know, it's good to figure things out before there's a battle. You know, it's good to figure things out before you're under pressure, and you got to preach that sermon, and it's like, man, if I say the wrong thing, you know what I mean, all these people are going to attack me or, or whatever. So uh, uh, go, keep your place there in Leviticus 14, and uh, go with me to the book of see where I want you to go. Go to Matthew. Matthew chapter number, I lost my place. Matthew chapter number, uh, let's see, 27. Matthew 27. And actually just hold your place there in Matthew 27 and go back to Leviticus 14, Matthew chapter 27. And I'm going to make several statements about this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And maybe I'm saying that and you don't even know what that means. Well, you're going to learn that tonight. And these are terms that you should be Aware of, you know, because they, they do, they are core doctrines of the faith. They, 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 they are the reason that we are Baptists, and you, you should learn what these things mean. So here's point number one. The substitutionary atonement of Christ, and you don't have to write that for every point, but it requires, and what it basically teach, teaches is that Christ takes our punishment while we go free. That's basically the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, there's a lot that goes into that, and we're going to talk about what has to go into that in order for that to work. But just so you kind of understand, what are we talking about? We're talking about Christ is our substitute. He takes our punishment. He takes the punishment, and we go free. Notice Leviticus 14 and verse 4. Then shall the priest command to take for him, that is to be cleansed, notice two birds, two birds alive and clean, now, notice the characteristics of this sacrifice and how they picture. They're a foreshadow of a future sacrifice because it says, and cedar wood. Now, why, why would you need a piece of wood? And I, I believe because there's really not much that the wood does other than it's just there as part of the sacrifice. And I believe that the wood here is picturing the cross. And, it's, and you will see that actually in the substitution verses a mention of the cross is made. So we see the cedar wood uh, picturing the cross. And then you have, and it says, and scarlet. Now, most people would agree that when it says scarlet there, it's referring to like a, a cloth. That's scarlet. The word scarlet is also translated as crimson in the Bible. It's, it's like a red. So you've got the, the, uh, a red, crimson, scarlet uh, cloth, which of course probably is a picture of the blood. And then you've got hyssop. Hyssop is a, uh, um, an herb or a plant. And I'll give you a reference for hyssop here in a second. But notice verse 5. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. So you got these two birds, you got the wood, you got the scarlet, you got the hyssop, and then one of the birds, it's killed... Notice verse 7. Let's skip down to verse 7 just real quickly. And shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose into an open field. So one bird is put to death while the other one is allowed to go free. Go, Go to Matthew chapter number 27. Now the Bible talks a lot about this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, but there's actually a very clear example of it, even in the death, the story of the death of Christ. Are you, you're there in Matthew chapter 27. Look at verse number 15. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 15. Because here was the sacrifice. You had two birds. One was put to death. One was let go. One took the punishment. One was set free. In Matthew 27, we have the story of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, getting ready to be put to death. And notice verse number 17. The Bible says, I'm sorry, verse 15. Now at the feast... The governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner, whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called the Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife said uh, unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And here's the point. Barabbas, the Bible tells us here, was a notable prisoner. In other Gospels, we're told that he murdered and he stole and he did a lot of bad things. And Pilate thought, you know, it's going to be real obvious. Who do I let go? This criminal who deserves to die? Or here we have Jesus who as far as Pilate could tell, and Pilate was right, had done nothing wrong, but yet the people, the Bible says, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Notice verse twenty-one. The governors answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do with this Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that was rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See you to it. Now, you know, before I go any further, and this has nothing to do with the sermon, but let me just say this that's, a lot, that's how a lot of Christians live their life, and that's stupidity. I mean, do you think that God holds Pilate any less accountable? You know, he realizes that there's something wrong going on. He realizes there's something bad going on. He realizes that it's not right. But he's just, well, I'm just going to wash, you know, figuratively wash my hands and I had nothing to do. No, you know what? Sometimes when you just stay silent you are still partaking in another man's sins. When you just sit there and you say, well, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. No, you're supposed to pipe up. You're supposed to stand up. You're supposed to say something. And Pilate should have said, I don't care what all of you guys say. I'm in charge here. I'm accountable here. And we're not going to crucify an innocent man. But of course, this was God's plan. We understand that. Jesus was supposed to die. That's why Pilate was there. And and God knew that Pilate wasn't going to let him go. We understand those things. But I just want to understand, because in your mind, you might justify something and say, well, I'm not really for that. And I don't think that's right. But I'm not going to say anything. And you just kind of got to figuratively wash your hands. But you know what you are? You're just a coward. Because it actually takes somebody to stand up and say, no, that's not right. No, we shouldn't do that. No, that's not the way we should go. Look at verse 25. Then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. You wonder why there's such a curse on the Jews today. Right. Then released he Barabbas unto them. When he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And The, point, the reason I'm bringing you here, go, go, to, go to 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number two, if you start at the end of the book of Revela- uh, at the end of the Bible, book of Revelation and head back, you're going to go past Jude, past third, second and first John, into second and first Peter. But, but the, the reason I showed you that is because there's actually a picture, even in the story of the death of Christ, that shows and not just a picture of the substitutionary atonement, because here's the thing. You could, you could put any one of our names there. Instead of Barabbas, we could put your name there. And it would be true because if you're saved, here's what that means. You deserve to die. You deserve to be punished. You deserve to go to hell. But the Lord Jesus Christ, who was innocent, took your place. Barabbas was let go and there and, the, and Christ was put to death. That's the picture that we see in Leviticus 14. That's the substitutionary uh, atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you there in 1 Peter? Peter chapter 2, look at verse number 24. four. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. 1 Peter 2, 24, notice what it says. Who his own self, talking about Jesus, who his own self, notice, bear our sins in his own body, notice the, the, the cedar wood, on the tree. All right, you see the reference to the wood there? That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes... Ye were, uh, ye were healed. The Bible says that His own self bear our sins in His own body. See, He took our sins. He was our substitute. Go to the book of Psalm. Keep your place in First Peter and put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. But go to Psalm fifty-one if you open up your Bible, just right in the center of the Bible, you'll more than likely follow the book of Psalms. And you remember in Leviticus 14, we saw that there was the uh, cedar wood, and then there was the scarlet, and then there was hyssop. Let me just real real quickly show you the connection to the hyssop. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a real famous psalm in the Bible because it's when David, King David, remember he had committed adultery, he killed Uriah the Hittite, and in Psalm 51, he's basically getting right with God, and he's confessing his sin to the Lord. Now, I want you to notice what he says in verse number seven. Psalm 51 and verse seven says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So you notice there's a connection with the hyssop and being purged, being made cleansed, being made whiter than snow. And I don't believe that David was getting, you know, saved in Psalm 51. Some people try to teach that it's a false teaching. But that terminology, we often use those terms in uh, talking about salvation. I mean, we sing uh, hymns about being made whiter than snow. So we see the connection there between the the hyssop and being cleansed, being purged. Go to Isaiah 53. You're there in Psalms. You're going to go past Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Look at verse number 4. Isaiah 53, verse number 4. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. And, you know, let me say this while we're talking about Pilate's cowardness. You guys that want to be preachers, here's, here's, here's the number one thing you're just going to have to learn to, to make it in ministry. Just saying things that piss people off. All right? Just taking positions that people don't like. If you can't do that, don't go in ministry. If you're a people pleaser, if your wife's a people pleaser, where ju- you're just going to constantly go with whatever everybody's doing, follow a multitude for sin, you're not going to make it in ministry. Because, the, the, you know, the, the reason I get paid around here is not to say yes, because everybody says yes to everything. The, the, my main thing that I do around here, you know, the number one thing I go around telling people is no. No. We're not doing that. We don't believe that. We don't think that. That's stupid. You haven't read the Bible. You're an idiot. You know, that's what I tell people. That's why I get paid. People go, I watch this video on you. No, it's the Trinity. No, it's the atonement of Christ. That's what a leader does. You're you're not worth your salt as a leader if all you do is say yes to me. You think you're a good dad or a good mom if you're just constantly saying yes to your kids? You think you're a good boss if you're just constantly saying yes? The point of a leader pilot is to say, no, that's wrong. We're not going to do that. We're not going to go down that road. So you as a leader need to learn to just realize, look, if you're trying to win a popularity con- uh, contest, um, you're going to fail as a leader. You're not going to be a good leader. You're not going to be whatever part, whatever leadership you want to do in life. You're going to fail Miserably. Isaiah 53, look at verse 4. Isaiah 53, verse 4. And whether it's parenting, whether it's being a husband, whether it's being an, uh, an employee, look, whatever it is, you've got to learn to say no. You've got to learn to say that's wrong. You've got to learn to say, I don't care what everybody thinks. You all want Barabbas to set free, but it's wrong to do that. And we're going to do the right thing. Isaiah 53, look at verse 4. Here's another great prophecy Of the atonement, the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he, that's talking about Jesus. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Notice verse 5. But he, this is Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, notice, we are healed. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's being taught in this passage is that the Lord Jesus Christ took our punishment. He bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and we were healed because of the stripes that were laid upon him. So, the substitutionary atonement of Christ requires, it requires that Christ take our punishment while we go free. Now, if if you go back to Leviticus chapter 14, and keep your place in 1 Peter you don't have to keep your place in Isaiah or Psalms. But go to Leviticus 14. Here's point number two. The substitutionary atonement of Christ not only requires that Christ take our punishment while we go free, but it also requires that Christ be a man or that the Savior be a man, meaning that he be flesh, that he be a human being. Have you ever thought about, you know, why did God, Have to become a man. Why was the word made flesh? Why was God manifest in the flesh? Why did God come down in the flesh? Why didn't just God come down as deity? To pay for our sins. But there's a reason for that. I want to show you first of all. Uh, Leviticus, go, go back to Leviticus 14 and let me show you how this passage kind of uh, shows us or pictures that. Leviticus 14, look at verse 4. Then shall the priest command to take for him, that is to be cleansed, two birds alive and clean, and cedar word and scarlet and hyssop, look at verse 5. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed, but notice, in an earthen vessel. He had to be killed, the bird, but you kill him in an earthen vessel. Vessel. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. Now remember that phrase, an earthen vessel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 7. The Apostle Paul says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, of course. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 says this. But we have this treasure. But we have this treasure Notice what he says in earth and vessels, and he's referring to our bodies. Why? Because we were made out of dust. Because we were made out of clay. Because, you know, our bodies were made out of dust. Our bodies will return to dust. And it's interesting because in Leviticus 14.5, it says, hey, you're going to kill one of the birds, but you're going to kill them in an earthen vessel. 2 Corinthians 4.7 says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Referring to our bodies as an earthen vessel. And what's being taught there is that the bird had to go into an earthen vessel. What's being taught there? That Jesus had to be wrapped in flesh he had to be robed in flesh he had to die but not just die as God, die as deity he had to die as a man in flesh Go, go to John chapter number one John chapter number one. I know you know this while you turn there let me turn to first let me read for you from First Timothy 3:16 and we've been looking at these verses a lot lately because of the Trinity but First um, Timothy 3:16 actually you know what? you go to Romans 5. Go, go to Romans 5 Matthew, Mark, Luke John. Acts Romans. Romans chapter 5. And let me read for you from 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up into glory. Here the Bible says that God was manifest in the flesh. Now, what does the word manifest mean? Manifest means that he was made known. That He could be seen, all right? God was manifest in the flesh. We know the Bible says that God is invisible. Jesus said, No man has seen the Father at any time. But here we're told that you were able, when you were able to see God, when you were able to physically look at God, what you look at is the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ was manifest in the flesh. But here's what I want you to understand, and I'm going to go a little bit on the Trinity thing for a second. But today you've got these oneness fools. going around trying to sound like they believe the same thing we do. But please listen to what they're saying. Because what they'll teach is this. They'll say, God was one entity who chose to reveal himself in in the person of Christ. And they'll say, he was one entity, but he chose to show himself as the Son. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that the Son was from everlasting. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. What he chose to manifest was, the, was God in the flesh. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not that he just decided, hey, I'm one, but let me reveal myself in three. I'll be the father, you be the son. No, the son always existed. The Son is eternal. The Son has always been. That's why Jesus is going to say, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. So it's not that he chose to manifest himself in three and he could have manifested himself in five. He could have man- No, no, no. The Godhead has always been the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three persons, all of eternity. All right? That's what the Bible teaches. You say, well, he was manifest. No, no, no. He was manifest in the flesh. The word was from the beginning, but the word was made flesh. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, I feel like we got to just really hit these doctrines because it's like people just aren't understanding what we're saying or maybe we're not being clear. The word has always been. Jesus has always been. The son has always existed. There was a time when he came down to this earth. And he, put, and, he, and he basically got into a, a vessel of, of clay. He ba- basically robed himself in flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. But, but some, the, the, the God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have always been. There was never a time when God just decided, you know what, I like the number three. Let's do three. Manifest into three. I could do five. I could do ten. No, no, that's not how it works. The God has, has always been three. It's always been three entities, three individuals. They were, and it's not like, oh, well, he chose to reveal himself in three because he made us in three parts. No, I think the Bible says that we were made in the image of God. Right, amen. He made us three because he was three. Not he be- chose to reveal himself three because he made. That's ridiculous. Anyway, uh, go, go go to Romans five. Here is what you need to understand: God could not take our place. A human being had to take our place. That bird had to be, it had to be in a vessel of clay. Are you there in Romans 5? Look at verse 12. Romans 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Who was that one man? That's Adam. Adam. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Notice verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in the life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous see the Lord Jesus Christ showed himself in a body before he was flesh he appeared in the Old Testament wrestled with Jacob showed himself to to uh, to Uh, Joshua as the captain of the host he appeared uh, to Abraham in in a bodily figure he appeared as Melchizedek He, he appeared before, why didn't that Jesus just die on the cross, why did he have to be born of a virgin, why did he have to be robed in flesh, here's why because we were condemned as humans, therefore we have to be redeemed by a human, and here's what you need to understand, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ requires that Jesus was 100% man. You say, is that, is that going against the deity of Christ? No, no, he had to be 100% God too. We're going to get to that in a minute. But he also had to be a man. He had to be a man in order to substitute for us. He had to be a man and, here, and people often, they get so caught up they're like, oh, you believe contradictory things. Here's what we believe. We believe that Jesus was 100% man and we believe that he was 100% God. Listen to me, that's 200. That doesn't make sense. You say, Well, we just accepted by faith. Here's what he wasn't he wasn't 50% man and 50% God. He's not some Greek demigod, he's not some Hercules. He was 100% man, he was 100% God. That's what he had to be to substitute for us because we were condemned because of Adam. We were condemned because we're sons of Adam. Leviticus, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the last Adam. The first Adam messed it all up. And before you get all critical on Adam, you would have messed it up too. And I would have messed it up. We all would have messed it up. But he was the last Adam. So the substitutionary atonement of Christ requires that Christ take our punishment while we go free. But the substitutionary atonement of Christ requires that Christ be a man, be flesh. Be uh, in an earthen vessel. Keep your, keep your place. Where are you? are you? Do you have your place in 2 Corinthians 5? Um, no, you don't. You have your place in 1 Peter 2. Okay, that's fine. Go back to Leviticus 14. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians 5 here in a minute. Um, but go, go back to Leviticus 14. Let me give you point number three. Point number three. So we saw that it requires that Christ take our punishment while we go free. We saw that it requires that Christ be made man. But I want you to notice number three, the substitutionary atonement of Christ requires that Christ remain sinless even while in the flesh. It requires that He remain sinless so that He could be accepted in death. Are you there in Leviticus 14? Look at verse 4. Notice what it says. Leviticus 14, 4. Then shall the priest command to take for Him, that is to be cleansed, two birds alive and clean and cedarwood, and scarlet, and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed. But it's not enough to kill the bird. It had to be killed in an earthen vessel. Picturing the flesh. Picturing the fact that the word was made flesh. That God was manifest in the flesh. But then notice this. Overrunning water. So why, why did they have to have running water? Over him. Because he had to stay clean even while he was in the earthen vessel. See, we, we believe that Jesus was, was 100% man, but you know what? We believe that he was 100% God, making him the God man, meaning, meaning that he was perfect. Amen. He was in the flesh, he, he, he was robed in flesh, but he never sinned like the rest of us in, in flesh. Are you there? Go to 2 Corinthians 5. Let's, let's run some verses. 2 Corinthians 5. The pastor says, everybody believes that. I thought everybody believed the Trinity. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 21. I'm just trying to lay the foundation so you never go astray. And I'm actually going to show you something that's not believed, or at least was attacked in the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ um, You know, a while ago, but it was something that was big in the IFB movement. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For ye hath made him, talking about Christ, for he hath made him to be sin for us, notice what it says, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Okay? He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Go, go back to 1 Peter Chapter number two. Remember, you kept your place there. Do me a favor, keep your place in 2 Corinthians because we're going to come right back to it. 2 Corinthians 5, and then go to 1 Peter. Keep your place in both. All right, I'd like you to be able to get back to 2 Corinthians and 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 21. 1 Peter 2 21. For even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Notice verse 22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. The Bible says he did no sin. The Bible says he knew no sin. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. You're there in 1 Peter. You're going to go past the book of James into the book of Hebrews. Past the book of James uh, into the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 15. Now Hebrews 4.15 is referring to a high priest. I I don't have time to, to go there, but if you want to jot this down, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that the high priest that's being referred to in chapter 4 is Jesus. All right? So when we're looking at Hebrews 4.15, we're talking about Christ. Notice what it says. For we have not an high priest, and again, Hebrews 3.1 tells us that that's Jesus. We have not in high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Look, Jesus was touched with all the feelings of our infirmities. Everything you've felt on this earth, uh, he felt it. And here's what it says. But was in all points tempted like as we are. Every temptation that you feel, Christ felt it. But here's the difference. Yet without sin. He never sinned. He was without sin. Just a couple weeks ago, I was out soul winning. I was talking to a young man. And, and you know, I was going through the gospel with him. Go, go to the book of 1 John. You're there in Hebrews. You're going to go past James, 1 Peter, 1 first John. 1 John chapter 3. And he, and he just kept telling me like, well, I just don't know that he was perfect. I don't know that he, you know, he never sinned, never did anything wrong. And it was really odd because I'd never really had anybody bring that up to me before. But I had this young man tell me this and I'm just explaining to him like, look, well, how many sins do you have to perform to go to hell? Because at first, the, his first hang up was, you know, he didn't think he was bad enough to go to hell. And I showed him, you know, all you got to do, it says, "And all liars shall have their part in the lake, burn the fire and brimstone, which is the second death. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. And I I won him over on that. And I said, look, how many sins do you have to perform to go to hell? How many lies do you have to tell? He said, one. And I said, look, if Jesus told one lie, then guess where he'd be going. And if he's going, he can't save us if he needs a savior. He had to be perfect. See, and this is important because, look, I can't substitute for you. I love my wife. I love my children. If I went to God and I said, God, I don't want my wife or I don't want my children to go to hell, I would like to go to hell in their place. The answer to that question would be no. Here's why. Because I have my own sins to pay for I can't substitute for them if I'm a sinner. The only reason that Jesus could take our place is because he knew no sin, because he never sinned, because he did not deserve to die. That's why he was just like Barabbas. He didn't deserve to die, Barabbas deserved to die, but he took the punishment that should have gone to Barabbas. And Barabbas went free. So it teaches that the substitutionary uh, death of Christ teaches us. That Christ was sinless. Which is why it had to be God. Because no human could keep the law. No man. No man could keep the law. Only God could. Therefore God said, I will become man. Are you there in 1 John? Look at at chapter 3 and verse 5. 1 John 3, 5. And you know that Jesus was manifested to take away our sins. Notice what it says. And in him is no sin. Alright, Jesus never sinned. Never lied, never had a bad thought, never never did anything wrong and this is all connected in this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It requires that Christ take our punishment while we go free. it requires that Christ be a man, be a hundred percent flesh in order to substitute for us, and literally to take the place of Adam. It requires that Christ also remain sinless. That's that, you know, running, uh, overrunning of the water, even while he's in the flesh, while he's in the earthen vessel. Here's, here's point number four. Go, go back to Leviticus 14. Leviticus 14, look at verse 6. Leviticus 14, verse 6. The substitutionary atonement of Christ requires that one who is made free be washed in the blood. The substitutionary atonement of Christ requires that the one who is made free be washed in the blood. Are you there in Leviticus 14? Look at verse 6. Leviticus 14 and verse 6. As for the living bird, he shall take it, and the cedar wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, notice, and shall dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed. So you kill the bird and the earthen vessel with the water running. But then you take the blood of the bird that was killed And you take the bird that's going to get set free, and you dip that bird in that blood. You wash that bird in that blood over the running water. And look at verse 7. And he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed. I'm talking about the leprous man. From the leprosy seven times and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. Go to Revelation chapter 1. We could go to lots of verses for this. I'm only going to go to one. Revelation chapter 1. Last book in the Bible. Should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse number 5. Revelation 1.5 says this. Revelation 1.5 And from Jesus Christ who is a faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. And to him that loved us, notice, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. See, he was the bird in the earthen vessel who stayed clean, who was put to death. We were the, blood, the bird that was dipped in the blood, washed in the blood and released. We were washed from our sins in his own blood. Who's ever heard of, of John MacArthur, famous, famous TV preacher John MacArthur? John MacArthur, I think he stepped away from this um, doctrine because he got so much heat for it. But, I, but years ago, John MacArthur began to attack the blood atonement of Christ. He began, I think he wrote a book and he began to preach sermons where he basically said that the blood of Christ, you know, we like dramatized it because we sing songs like there's power in the blood, you know, and we got all emotional about blood. But he says there's no power in the blood. The blood just fell on the ground there. It wasn't about the blood. It was about Jesus. But listen, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That blood, the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, had to take that blood up to the tabernacle in heaven and take that blood and sprinkle it seven times in the mercy seat, just like the Levitical law calls for. He had to do that in order for us to be saved. So even a famous preacher like John MacArthur might try to get you to think, "Oh, there's no, uh, there, there's no power in the blood. There's no reason for that." You know, it was just it was just emotional. We just you know see the pictures or whatever. But no, the Bible says that we were washed. That our, our sins were washed in his own blood. Amen. That our, our sins were remitted because of the shedding of his blood. So look, you have to know what you believe. You have to know, you know where you stand. What, what does the doctrine teach? You know, here at Verity Baptist Church, we believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Go, go, go to 1 John chapter 4. That's the last place we'll look at. Uh, tonight. First John chapter 4. If you're there in Revelation, you want to head backwards, you're going to go past Jude into 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John. We believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. You say, what does that mean? That means that Christ takes our punishment while we go free. But the only way that that could work is if Christ be a man in order to take the place of Adam. But the only way that that could work is if Christ was sinless and perfect. But the only way that that could work is if Christ was also God because no man could live without sinning. And the only way that that could work is if we're washed in the blood of that sacrifice. That's salvation. And here's the, you say, well, doesn't everybody believe that? Here's what you need to understand. Whether it's Trinity or the atonement of Christ... People may say they believe that. They may say they believe that. But you have to listen to what they're saying to actually what they're teaching to actually understand what they believe. Because you could look at someone and say, well, it sounds like they say the exact same thing that you're saying. But here's the thing. What are they actually saying? Or here's a good question. What are they not saying? But as you know, a Catholic will tell you we believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But here's the thing, though, they also believe that you have to go to the confessional booth, or you're not, or you're going to die and go to hell. They also believe that you have to get baptized, or you're going to die and go to hell. They also believe that you have, you know, they got these seven sacraments you got to go through. Well, here's the thing. You may say you believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, but no, you don't. Because here's what the substitutionary atonement of Christ teaches, that he took my punishment. He made the complete payment. It wasn't a down payment. He took care of all of it. All I had to do was be washed in the blood of the lamb. And if you say, no, no, no," you got to get baptized, then you don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Well, no, you got to repent of your sin. Then you don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Well, no, you, you can lose it if you do something bad. Then you don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. You may say you do. Your doctrinal statement may say it. But just because you say it doesn't make it so. If you sit there and say, well, it wasn't enough. You know, it's, it's faith in Christ and my works. And you don't believe that his death was enough. And look, you can't have it both ways. Either I'm going to get to heaven because he was good enough or I'm going to get to heaven because I was good enough. But it's not going to be a joint venture. And look, I know that I'm not good enough. So I'm just going to trust in him. First John 4, look at verse 10. First John 4, verse 10. First John four 10. First John four ten. 10. Here in his love. First John four ten. 10. Here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be notice these words the propitiation for our sins the propitiation for our sins let's start learning these doctrinal words propitiation learn that word so what does that mean the word propitiation means to make right to reconcile to appease we look we were dead in our trespasses and sins we were at odds we were enemies of god But when Jesus was sacrificed, that sacrifice appeased God the Father. That sacrifice. And and if you believe oneness, then I don't know how that works. You know, one personality of God was mad at, at us, but the other one wasn't. Look, here's what the Bible teaches. We were at odds with God, God the Father. And Jesus Christ reconciled us to him. He reconciled us unto himself. He sent him to do that work. He loved us. Obviously, we understand that. But we, the appeasement, the, uh, the, 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 the appeasement, the reconciliation was done through the substitutionary atonement of Christ. So Christ is our complete substitution. And he's our complete appeasement. There's nothing that I need to add to it. He didn't put a down payment and I got to make the payments. He just paid the whole thing. Paid in full. And then he said, he, here's what he did. He went, he went and purchased salvation, and then he gave it to us freely. That's a gift. A gift is not that it doesn't cost anything. It just means that it doesn't cost the one who's receiving it anything. But the one who gives it, it cost him a lot. You say, what did it cost? God, the, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he died on the cross, was buried. The Bible tells us his soul went to hell, and he rose from the grave. Why? To be the substitutionary atonement for our sins. Let's bow our heads in that word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be able to study the Bible together, to learn the Bible. And Lord, help us, to just get, help us to just go down deep on these basic doctrines. Lord, help us to just make sure we have a good understanding of just the basic beliefs that we have as Baptists, as Christians. One of the core fundamental truths, we may hear somebody real popular and famous like John MacArthur say, the blood was worthless, and help us to, to know what we believe and say, no, wait a minute, the substitutionary atonement of Christ requires that the one who was set free to be cleansed through that blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And Father, I just pray you'd help us to be a church that's grounded in the Word, grounded in what we believe. Help us to study, to show ourselves, to prove unto God. We love you, Father. We thank you for everything you do for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.